Romans 8, it has been called the best chapter in all of the Bible. Agree or disagree? Kind of hard to pick a best out of uh, all of them, but if the individual books of the Bible are a series of mountain ranges, then the book of Romans is, is the highest of the ranges. And chapter 8 sits as the highest peak among the highest of the ranges because it covers the entirety of salvation from the very first verse, which speaks of no condemnation now, to the very last verse, which speaks of the future and how nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in the eternal future. It covers it all. And I realized this week I've never preached Romans chapter 8 since my, I've been at All Saints. And we've got Ascension Sunday next Sunday and then Pentecost Sunday the following. So I thought, well, let's give it a shot. A few weeks in Romans 8 before we begin a study in the book of Malachi. So why did Paul write the book of Romans? If you remember, he's wanting to pass through the city of Rome on his way to Spain. No churches had ever been planted in Spain. He wants these Christians, the capital city of the empire, to support his work and to be on board, particularly with the gospel that he's preaching. So in this book, he fleshes out the nature of the gospel, his entire theology of kingdom, gospel, the people of God, in greater detail than anywhere else in any of his writings. He writes it also, he knows that there are tensions in the church between Jews and Gentiles, just like there were in all of the churches. So he writes to address some of those pastoral issues. The immediate prior chapter to 8 is, of course, 7, where he famously speaks of this figure. He says, O wretched man, O wretched man that I am. And it's led down through the centuries Christian commentators and students of the Bible to relentlessly debate who is this figure, this wretched man, who is described in terms of the inability to obey God and to love God. This this wretched man is a literary figure or a person who has no power to fight against the sin which is inside of him. Well, if I went through all of the different options for chapter 7, we'd be here to like, Friday. So I'll just boil it down to what, what I think. Um, the wretched man of Romans 7 are people before they come to faith in Jesus Christ. Jewish people like Paul, who living as he did under the old covenant, was a d- devoted and zealous Jew who wanted to obey God with all that he, he had, and yet time and again found that he was incapable of doing so. It describes Paul. It also describes particularly Gentiles who were called the God-fearers. And it would basically be a Gentile who would worship on a weekly basis in a Jewish synagogue, who, again, was devoted and committed to God, but found that they were incapable of truly loving God and loving their neighbor as they should. And so they reached this existential crisis at the end of uh, chapter 7, where he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he ends it. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, who, who delivers me from this body of death. Therefore, 
chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You've got to take a minute to just let that seep into you because it's one of the most staggering statements in all of the Bible. Paul maintains that there is a group of people in this world who know the final verdict that's going to be spoken on the last day, the day of judgment. They know right now what that verdict is. Not five years in the future when you've got your prayer life better or you've gotten control of your temper or you're more generous or you're less selfish. He says, there's a group of people, sinners that they be, who are like everybody else insofar as they're prideful, lustful, they have selfish habits and mixed motives, yet they can know right now what the final verdict is. Hey, who is this person? Who are they? He says those who are in Christ. Uh, for some of you, that's the, only, that's the only word you need to hear today in the sermon. You can tune out the whole rest of the sermon because all you needed to hear were those beautiful words. There is now no condemnation for you. And if, uh, I pray that the Holy Spirit, for, I know there are people here, there's a few of you, you just need that seared into your soul and conscious, consciousness. No condemnation. Zero. Nada. Nilch. <laughs> Such a word exists. Nilch. Zilch. Why is it that there are, how do we know that there is now no condemnation? He tells us in verse 2, no condemnation because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now here, normally when Paul talks about the law and throughout the rest of the passage when he talks about the law, he's referring to the Torah. The Old Testament law, the first five books of the Bible, the Ten Commandments. Here, law is being used as a metaphor for power. You know that you have been delivered from condemnation because the power of the Spirit has set you free from the old power of sin and death. What I imagine here is a prisoner who's been in... um, solitary confinement for many, many years, and his lawyer keeps coming back to him and saying, you know, this April, your case is going to go before the parole board. They may grant you, uh, oh, what do you call it? Uh, Not a reprieve, but a pardon. You know that your case is going to go before the governor, and he might, year after year, that happens, and and the prisoner is still stuck in the cell thinking, yeah, right. I'll believe it when I see it. Well, Paul says, you can believe it now because you have been given the spirit of Christ. Uh, It's like walking out of the prison cell, out of the gates of the prison and having the sun strike you on the face for the very first time after years and years of being in a padded cell. And you're staggering under the glory of finally being a free man. That's what, he's, that's what he's trying to say, verses 1 and 2, feel like. Not only is the sentence of not guilty pronounced, but you are now delivered from 
your long prison cell. Verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do, the Torah was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh. Flesh is one of those code words in the Bible. Very important to know what it means. It doesn't mean your skin. It doesn't mean dermatitis. It means the, the power of sin inside of you that hijacks your body to do what you uh, do not want to do. He says the, the Torah was powerless because it was weakened by the, the flesh. But God did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so God condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus is the sin offering. Jesus, so the way in the book of Leviticus, sin is described, it's kind of like the accumulation of layers upon layer of muck and mire and filth. If we went out and inspected some of your cars in the parking lot, we would see this, we would, if you saw my car, you would definitely see part of that. That's how sin is this defilement that, that grows on people, and it also grew on the tabernacle, and all of the parts of the tabernacle, the altar, and the altar burn offering. And so a, a sin offering was offered in order to make cleansing for all of this, this yucky defilement that took place. But not only was it used to cleanse, but it was used to kill. It's not like we take uh, the, the fur of a little goat and use it, the wool of a goat, to wipe things down. The, the, the goat sacrifices its life because sin must be put to death. And I love how a New Testament professor, Michael Bird, puts this. He says, that Jesus sucks the poison of sin out of us. He draws the poison of sin, its vile venom, out of us and into his body so that sin might be denounced and defeated and put to death on the cross. It's kind of, if you think of the old Western movies when somebody was bitten by a rattlesnake, the, the cowboy, he, he puts his lips on the bite and starts to suck the sin out. That's the picture here. All of, all of our sin gets concentrated on Jesus so that he becomes the sin offering through which all death and sin are done away with. Verse 4. And here's why it happens. In order that the righteous requirement of Torah might be fully met in us. In order that Torah might be fulfilled in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. I realized this morning there's a lot of theology that I'm covering and trying to cover in a really short period of time and distance. Chapters 5 through 7, you're just going to have to take my word for it, that there's a lengthy conversation going on in the book of Romans about the role of Torah. and What's the purpose of God's law. At times you're reading Paul and it almost seems as though Paul is mad at the Torah. Or, or he thinks that the Torah is the problem. Ah, but that would be very strange because he's a man who's devoted his whole life to following Torah. He's like, Paul, what's your deal? Why do you, why do you hate the Ten Commandments? Why do you hate the first five books of the Bible? Well, at the, near the end of chapter 7, I think it's 7, he says, well, don't misunderstand me. Torah is good. 
The law is holy, righteous, and good. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with the flesh inside of us, which takes the good law and uses it to to condemn us. A very good example of this, if you think about some of the Old Testament laws, some of the quirky Old Testament laws in the book of Leviticus, how they were told not to dress in a certain way, not to eat certain foods. If you remember a really weird one, they're not to worship on altars that are made of cut stones. You're reading along, and what does that mean? All of it was intended to separate them from who? From the nations, from the peoples. They were were supposed to be a set-apart group devoted to the Lord. Now, that's good. The law is good. But what ends up happening, and we see all through the Old Testament, is the flesh takes good laws like that and builds God's people up in prideful egotism and scorn. And like we prayed about it earlier, how that our lives are supposed to be God-trusting, neighbor-loving. That was true of Israel in the Old Testament too. But what happened was the flesh took the Torah and turned it into turned them into God doubting, neighbor scorning people. Instead of being a light of light to the nations that brings all the people to Yahweh and to the God of the Bible, instead they they despise the nations. That's a simple example of it. The flesh perverts Torah. And so that was the case of God's people in, under the old covenant. Torah could tell you what to do and to tell you why you should do it, but Torah could never give you the power in order to fulfill itself. So Paul's argument finally comes to this crescendo where he says, the New Testament, the new covenant gift of the Holy Spirit is what enables you to do what the old covenant Torah could never ever do. The problem throughout the old covenant, they could never fulfill Torah. But you, my friends... My brothers and sisters, you through the Spirit accomplish what the Old Covenant could not. Verse 5. Okay, I'm going to read through the rest of this pretty quickly. I know that was a lot of commentary. Verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and shalom. The mind governed by the flesh, it is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because, here it says, because of righteousness. That's kind of like code language for grace. The Spirit gives life by God's grace. And, verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, if that spirit is living in you, then he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. 
Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you by the Spirit put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. That was a long reading, and as I said, I was skipping over some of it pretty quickly. Here's the image I want want you to play around with me for just a minute. Imagine we put a metal detector at the door of the church that you had to pass through before you came inside to worship. Only this metal detector has been specially fitted not to detect metal, but to detect the mind of the spirit. I don't know how, you, how you'd make this, but suppose that if you pass through this, this mind of the spirit detector, it is able to determine whether or not you over today and over the course of the week were thinking with the mind of the spirit. We're operating in the realm of the spirit. We're living and acting and breathing and doing all according to the Spirit. So if you pass through and you have been, then it beeps, boop, and you're allowed to enter the church. And if, it, if uh, you haven't, then, then you have to go back out to the car in the parking lot. Here's a question. How many of us would be sitting here right now? Yeah, I, I think that the answer many people would give is that uh, none of us would be sitting here right now. None of us can live up to that standard, the, the spirit detector standard. No, or, or if anybody could, it would be very few of us. A few super holy ones of us would be allowed to come in and worship God. I understand that answer. That answer sounds very humble. It sounds accurate. It sounds very self-effacing. Like, oh, But what I want you to hear is according to Romans chapter 8, that answer is wrong. It's entirely wrong. Like if that's the answer that would make Paul start to pull his hair out of his head, because his whole argument has been building to this point where he's saying that you, uh, on whom the Spirit has come, the very Spirit that was promised by Ezekiel, the very Spirit that was told Israel would receive and she'd have a new heart and a new mind by which to finally worship God and fulfill Torah. That Spirit has come upon you. All of biblical history has been building up to this point. He says it there that the very Spirit that animated the dead body of Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday is the same Spirit that he's breathed into you. So to then sit back and say, well, none of us could, uh, that, he would, he'd freak out. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I totally get it. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Wouldn't you like to be a sinner too? You know? we, we, we still sin every day. And Paul understands that fact. But did you notice, even though we still sin every day, did you notice, is it verse 4? where he says, even though you're daily a sinner, nevertheless, you, verse 4, the righteous requirement of Torah might be fully met in us. Torah fulfilled. 
He'll go on later in the book to describe what it means to fulfill Torah in Romans chapter 12 and Romans chapter 13, how it's only Christians who can truly offer themselves their bodies as living sacrifices, and only Christians can truly love God and love their neighbor the way that God intended. But he says, you, you fulfilled Torah. Um, where am I? <laughs> There's so much of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we barely understand. Uh, I, I don't understand how a spirit who is a person that comes to fill me can somehow interact with my own human spirit, can influence my own human desires and emotions and thoughts. Well, like we talked about last week, when we were talking about the devil and demons. How does a, a spiritual being outside of you change the way that you think? I, I, I don't know. And I don't understand how exactly the Spirit works. What I do know is that the true Christian can see results. Some results. Um, the way that he changes our minds. There's probably a thousand way, the, ways the Holy Spirit speaks to the souls of his people and influences us. But I came across this week what I thought was a really great example of uh, a Christian whose mind, who was operating in the with the mind of the Spirit. And it was, did you see the story about the Archbishop of Canterbury? It was all over the, the British news and newspapers and BBC. Um, the Archbishop of Canterbury is the symbolic head of the Anglican Church. His name is Justin Welby. He's been in his position now for three years. His parents, or he was born in 1955, nine months after his parents uh, were, were, were married, which might be a little bit of a hint that things... Well, but up until this point, he had never had any real reason to question that his father was his biological father. It was not until the London Telegraph, which is one of the most prominent newspapers in London, began sleuthing into his background, what they realized is when they pulled up pictures of a young Justin Welby, he looked nothing like Gavin Welby, his father, whom he had spent the, the entirety of his life with. His mom, both of his parents were alcoholics, and when they divorced, when he was at the age of three, he ended up going to live with his father. And so this was his father that he'd known his whole life. But uh, the London Telegraph started sleuthing around, researching, and it just so happened that he looked an awful lot like Sir, oh, what's his name? Sir Anthony Montague Brown, the private secretary of Winston Churchill back in 1966, who his mother was working with right before her marriage to Gavin Welby in 1966. So the the way the story goes, the archbishop, they contacted him, they shared their findings with him, and he decided he would take a DNA test. It turns out that this man he thought was his father for all of his life, the man that he grew up with, wasn't. And his mother, it's not that she was trying to hide things, it's that she was an alcoholic, and she could barely remember the liaison that took place between her and, and Sir Montague Brown back in 1966. But it happened. Well, I, I don't know if you've ever walked through something like this with somebody where they find out in their adulthood that their biological 
father is not the one that they grew up with, or mother for that instance. I, I have, and I can simply say that it shakes, it rattles the very foundations of a person. But what, what makes this story so compelling to me is the way that the Archbishop of Canterbury replied to it. He, he, said, he said, quote, The DNA results were a complete surprise to me, but I am not undergoing an existential crisis. And I do not feel resentment against my mother or my father. I know who I am. My identity is in Jesus Christ, and that has not changed. Even if I understand my genetics a little differently now. At the very outset of my inauguration service to the office of Archbishop three years ago, a member of the congregation as part of the liturgy of ordination calls aloud in the service, we greet you in the name of Christ. Who are you and why do you request entry? To which I respond, responded in the liturgy that I am Justin, a servant of Jesus Christ, and I come as one seeking the grace of God to travel with you in his service together. Do you know what? That's every bit as true today as it was the day before I took the DNA test. I know that I find who I am in Jesus Christ, not in genetics, not even in my position as the highest symbolic leader of the Anglican Church. Um, I don't know if you, if you heard that story, but I thought, what an incredible example of a man whose mind is operating in the realm of the spirit. And it strikes me in such contrast to the sentimental banalities of the thinking that characterizes our world today. We're constantly uh, provoked by stupid sentimentality, like uh, somebody dies, well, it's okay because they've gone to a better place. Yes, says who? You're going through a hard time in life. Well, things will work out in the end. Says who? (laughs) Or the ubiquitous advice that the most important thing is your health. Says who? (laughs) You can do anything you set your mind to. The the mind of the spirit thinks and acts differently. Um, uh, There's a lot more uh, material on this. uh, Maybe I can cover it next week. I, I just think there's hours of potential discussion for community groups on this topic. I love this picture, though. What is it like to be filled with a person? Not to be filled with a force or an electrical charge, but as the Christian doctrine of the Holy Spirit is concerned, what is it like to be filled with a person? It's like an artist who was so filled with his fiance that for two years he could never draw a picture without sticking her in it. No matter where the landscape was that he was drawing and painting, if, if he was drawing apple trees, then she was always under the apple tree. If he was drawing a seascape, then she was always on the rocks overlooking the sea. That's what it's like to be filled with a person. It means to be looking for that person everywhere your eyes take you. And that, that's got to be a characteristic to have the spirit of Christ in you. Uh, You're looking for Jesus everywhere. Let me see. I'll I'll finish here with a controversial statement and see if you agree or disagree with it. This is written by another British dude, Tim Chester, 
who is an author and a church planter in the UK. He's speaking about Romans chapter 8, and he says, Romans chapter 8 teaches that there is nothing God expects you to do that you cannot do. Agree or disagree? There's nothing God expects you to do that you cannot do. The sin that defeats you need not defeat you. The fears that consume you need not consume you. Why? Because the spirit who breathed life into the rotting flesh of Jesus is the spirit who's been breathed into your heart. The God who raised Jesus from the dead is the spirit that is living inside of you. Therefore, there's nothing that God expects you to do that you cannot do. What do you think about that? (laughs) I'm really conflicted. Um, I've met Christians on both ends of the spectrum. Two Christian people who experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the Christian life differently. Category A people. They, They would describe the Christian life as this intense battle with temptation and struggle where it feels as though you have way more failures than you do victories. Anybody a category A Christian? And then there's the, there's the category B, the people who, it's not that they're saying that they're sinless and perfect, of course they're not, but they do, they're a whole lot more optimistic about the Christian life. They do feel like if you put it in the balance, the number of victories outweigh the number of uh, the number of losses. Which of the two, category A or category B, are you? And which of the two is right? Honestly, I'm not sure. I think most of us can relate a whole lot more to the category A, but when I read through the writings of Paul, it seems like he loves to write largely uh, in terms of category B. Martin Luther wrote a little tract called The Freedom of the Christian where he tells the story of a king who marries a prostitute. And that's Luther's allegory of the marriage of Jesus Christ with us as sinners. He says, as soon as the two marry, then the prostitute becomes by status a queen. It's not that she's made her behavior queenly so that she wins the right to the king's hand. She was and is a wicked harlot through and through. However, when the king makes his marriage vow, her status changes. She is simultaneously a prostitute at heart and a queen by status. Have you heard that analogy before or something similar? It's true. It's, it's completely true. But don't press it the wrong direction. Insofar as you don't, yes, you have a harlot's heart. You've got the heart of a hooker. But it's not supposed to stay that way. He's supposed to be, he makes you a queen first, and then he's supposed to start giving you the heart of a queen. You, you're supposed to become more queenly. Now, we can disagree to what extent that transformation happens in this life, and I'm sure we probably will disagree on what we expect to experience of it. Uh, but make no mistake, we aren't slaves to sin anymore. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. There is an observable victory over sin that takes place in the Christian life, even if we don't feel like we're experiencing a whole lot of it. As far as God's concerned, we are dramatically changed by the breath of the spirit. 
Amen.